0: that last song is titled A Song of Unity. It's uh, an original song that we have here at UBC and, and such a beautiful reminder of the unity that is to be shared and experienced in a community of faith and in the body of Christ. Uh, something that's so powerful and something definitely worth celebrating and, and looking towards. And uh, it's, it's somewhat appropriate too, especially as we enter into the 4th of July weekend and we're hopefully also reminded of the unity that we share is a country, as we celebrate our nation's independence and we think about what it means to be a part of the United States, right, which is not something we often feel at times, it seems like in this country, sometimes it feels like we're, we're not quite as united as we would like to be and so hopefully we get a little bit of a reprieve from sometimes the, the division and the, the animosity that can be so prevalent at times in our culture and over the next few days, we can just enjoy the gift of unity and celebrating the 4th of July. I love the 4th of July. Can I get an amen? Anybody else? It, it, to me, it's, it's such a fun holiday. I've always enjoyed it. It's always been a great way to celebrate. And one of the reasons, I think, is because of the way we celebrated it when I was younger and when I was growing up. I lived in a neighborhood where we would have this kind of annual parade, and uh, it was always fun for the kids because you could decorate your bike or your scooter, or whatever you had, and so you'd get with your friends the day before, and we'd put these red, white, and blue streamers, and people would always try to get really creative and inventive, because then there'd be somewhat of like, a, I think a prize or an award for the best decorated bike or whatever, but all the kids would then wake up the next day, and we'd join in this parade. Parents would decorate their cars, and we'd go around our neighborhood, and then we'd end at the community pool that was right there in the middle of the neighborhood, and we'd swim all day. There would be games. There would be endless amounts of food and dessert. I mean, it was just awesome. I loved the 4th of July. It was, it was just such a great way to celebrate. It's just filled with joy, right? And, and I think that's something that we really value are those moments where our lives can be infused with these joyful celebrations. Now, the thing that we're always trying to be mindful of when you go through 4th of July celebration is to recognize that that joy is really rooted in sacrifice, right? That when we think about what it is that secured our freedom and protects our freedom, it was really all anchored in the sacrifice of many men and women who have gone before us to make sure that we have the opportunity to be joyful this weekend, right? You can go back and you can study and look at some of the estimates that are offered in terms of how many Americans have given their life in wars or conflicts In our country, and I believe the estimates uh, get close to about 1.3 million American lives, right, that have been given um, to secure and protect the freedom that we're gonna get a chance to celebrate this weekend. And, And I call that to your attention because it's another reminder that sacrifice and death is intimately connected to joy. Right? Those two things often go very closely together, and we see that not just when we celebrate our nation's independence, but we for sure see that when we come to the gospel. Right, That when we think about the essence of the gospel, at the center of this gospel message is a story of sacrifice, a story of death, and yet that sacrifice and that death leads to joy. And so that's what we want to really kind of dive into this morning and explore further and to, to give ourselves the opportunity to ask ourselves that question, is that joy evident in my life? Do I truly understand the joy that is, that is offered and promised in this gospel? And that's my hope, not just as we celebrate the uniqueness of this weekend, but as we gather together once again as a community of faith and are reminding one another of what it means to give our hearts to this gospel and the joy that it provides. And so to that end, let's turn our hearts, let's turn our minds, and let's go to the Lord in prayer as we ask for him to give us that sense of joy this morning. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity once again to gather together as a community of faith and to sing, and to sing songs that point us back to the gift of Jesus, the amazing grace that we have in Christ, and the sacrifice that allows us to enter into this room with joyful praise joyful celebration and baptism, joyful at your creation and the many works that your hands have made, joyful at being able to just gather together and open up your word. And so we ask, God, that as we now turn to the scriptures, that your spirit would truly inhabit this place, it would would strengthen us, it would embolden us, it would equip us to encounter the world that awaits us, God, and that we could go forth into that world as people of joy because we understand all that Jesus has done for us. We thank you, Father, for who you are and what you're doing, and we now commit all this time to you and to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. All right, grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 5. The theme for the year has been uh, the renewed life, or living as God's renewed people. And when we first introduced this theme, we we looked at Romans 12, 1 and 2 to extract some of the key characteristics of a renewed life, which we identified as devotion discernment, and delight. And as we've walked through the book of Romans, we've gotten through the first four chapters of Romans, a lot of those markers of devotion, discernment, and delight have been explained and elaborated upon by Paul. Now, not explicitly, though. right? You kind of have to look for it, but let me try to make those correlations for you. When you think about devotion, so much of what Paul is arguing here through the first part of this letter is that uh, righteousness or the righteous should live by faith. Faith is an expression of devotion, right? And so part of what Paul has been saying is your devotion does not need to be anchored in the law of works. Your devotion does not need to be anchored in your identity as as a Judaic people. Your devotion needs to be anchored in Jesus, right? Having a faith in Christ. And and in that devotion, that's where transformation takes place. That's when we're no longer conformed to the patterns of of the world, but we're renewed in our minds, Right? And so you think about the patterns of the world that Paul explains in the first chapter when he talks about godlessness and wickedness. Right, That the pattern of the world is that temptation to exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship created things rather than the creator. You see a list of that behavior that that is on display there at the end of chapter 1, malice and greed and envy and all these different examples that Paul points to. Those are the things that we should be transformed from, right? That we should be renewed and no longer conform to those patterns because of our devotion. You get to chapter 4, and you could say that this is really Paul's approach to talking about discernment, right? How do we know that the righteous are to live by faith? How do we discern that to be God's plan and his will? And so he points us to Abraham. He says, look at the story of Abraham. Think back to Genesis 15, 6 and how Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right? Think about how Abraham was fully persuaded that God had the power to do the things that he had promised. Abraham was able to discern that this is what God's will was. And we too can look at the scriptures. We can look at Abraham's story and discern this is God's will. So through the first four chapters, you can see those elements of devotion and discernment. And so as we get to chapter five, we're going to get a chance to see delight. And that's what we're going to take a look at this morning. Now, what we're going to do is we're really going to focus on verses six through 11. Uh, Kevin did a great job last week of introducing verses one through five. really appreciate him filling in in my absence. He did a great job of uh, drawing our attention to some of those just unique elements of the first five verses that point us to the faith hope, and love that we have in God. Uh, But those five verses are very uh, connected to verses six through 11, and they really build upon each other. So I'm gonna read verses one through 11. We'll, We'll refer back to some elements of those first five verses as we seek to better understand verses six through 11 this morning. So let's take a look. Chapter five, starting in verse one. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which, in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. But not only so, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, But not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now have received reconciliation. All right, those are the first 11 verses of chapter 5. And as I said, it's going to give us an opportunity to really talk about the joy that we have in the gospel and this idea of delight. Now, when you first read it, you're probably thinking to yourself, how does that correlate to joy? I I didn't hear the word joy. It's not written in there. There's no reference to delight. What is this really have to do with joy and delight. And so let me kind of walk us through that momentarily. In fact, really when you first read uh, the first, uh, really, verses 6 through 11, and when you hear it for the first time, you could really make the argument that the theme is death. Because just in those first four sentences, starting in verse 6, the word death or die is referenced four different times. Right? You can go back and kind of look at it and see how consistently... Paul refers to it. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, for a good person, someone who might possibly dare to die. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Christ died for us over and over again. There's a reference to death and to sacrifice. And so remember that that kind of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, that death and sacrifice is intimately connected To joy, and it's definitely a focal point of this particular passage. Now, the context with which Paul is bringing our attention to death and to Jesus' death in particular is really connected back to verse five when Paul is talking about God's love being poured into our hearts, right? So he uses that as this transitional statement, right? That God has poured out his love into our hearts. And so, how do we know his love? Through the death of Jesus right, through the sacrifice of Jesus. That's why we have that very well-known verse right there in the middle of these last few verses. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the emphasis on death is really an emphasis on love, right, and that's what Paul is really trying to explain. But again, how does that really connect it to joy, Well, let me tell you how this kind of unfolded for me. I'm I'm reading through these verses, verses 6 through 11, and what really grabbed me initially was verse 11, right, where where Paul seems to offer somewhat of a conclusion, right? What is our response to this love and to this sacrifice? Well, we should boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what grabbed me, verse 11. And I started thinking to myself, okay, well, what does it mean to boast in God? Right Now, this is a, a common theme that Paul has presented. It actually reminded me back in chapter three when Paul asked the question, where then is boasting? Are we to boast in the law of works, right? And he kind of challenges that that natural disposition to boast in our own abilities and our own works. And now he's redefining the sort of boasting that should be evident in our lives. We should boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that also gains some weight and some merit when you look at chapter five because it's not just mentioned in verse 11, That same word for boasting is mentioned in verse two, right? We should boast in the hope of the glory of God. And so if you're following, here's Paul. He's made this argument through the first four chapters of devotion and discernment. He gets to chapter five, and now he's, he's saying, as a result of all these things, as a result of your devotion and discerning all these things, you should live a life that boasts in the hope of the glory of God, that boasts in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But when you read that, if you're like me, I still wrestle with what does that look like, right? Because when you hear the word boast, don't you think like bragging, and pride? So like what does it practically mean to boast in God? Like are we supposed to walk around and be like, what's up, I'm a Christian. Yep, I love Jesus. I'm just boasting in God. You know, like what does it look like? We typically associate the word boasting with kind of that arrogant, prideful, bragging sort of mentality, and so the, the real way to kind of try to figure this out is to look at the, the actual definition of the word. And when you look at it in the Greek, it's kakauamai, very hard to pronounce, so that's the closest as I can get to it, uh, kakauamai. And when you lo- look at this section in the Greek, you actually discover that that word for boasting is not mentioned twice, but actually a third time in verse three. Right? And so in verse three, if you're reading the NIV, it's translated there as glory, so we glory in our sufferings. Well, that didn't really help. Uh, it doesn't help me, at least, in terms of getting a practical idea of what it looks like to do this, because I don't know what it means to glory in something either. Okay, but what you discover is that when you actually look at the definition of kakawamai, what you see is that it can be translated as either as to boast, to brag, to glory in, or to rejoice. And now that grabbed my attention. And I started thinking, well, maybe that's a better translation. And so I did a little bit of a comparison with different translations. And depending on which translation you read, if you read something different than the NIV, there's a good chance that you're going to see those three words in verse 2, 3, and 11 translated as rejoice. And so when you read it that way, think about the theme and the tone that Paul is setting. In verse 2, he's saying, therefore, we rejoice rejoice. In the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. And then the conclusion, verse 11, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So over and over again, Paul is saying the result of this devotion, this discernment, is to live a life where you rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. It's a reminder that one of the key characteristics of the renewed life is to be joyful. That is who we're called to be. So let me ask you that question this morning. Are you joyful? Right? Is that how people see you? Is that how you you would be described by others? When you think about the church, not just this church, but the church and Christians as a whole, are we typically known to be joyful people? This should be one of the key characteristics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. People who know what it means to rejoice. But the reality is, is that I think sometimes joy is somewhat elusive, right? It's somewhat difficult for us. And the question we need to ask ourselves is why? Why is it so elusive? If, if I'm truly devoting myself to Christ and I have this ability to discern his good, pleasing, and perfect will, shouldn't the inevitable outcome be a life that delights in the Lord and that rejoices? And I think one of the reasons that sometimes joy is difficult is because we fill our lives with distractions, right? It's easy for us to confuse happiness with joy. And for the sake of our conversations this morning, the way I would create a distinction between those two is that happiness is often things that are fueled by that which is temporary, right? That, that which wouldn't really last, whereas joy endures. And so what we'll do is we'll follow the patterns of the world, Right, we'll do all these other things that the world is going to say this will bring you happiness. Pursue a great career, pursue relationships, fame, notoriety, wealth, all of these different things, and that's going to make you happy. And the truth is, it will for a time, but it ultimately fades. And so it often distracts us from all these other things that really prevent us from being able to actually see joy and a joy that actually endures. And I think that's what Paul helps us correct. Is he, he helps get our minds reoriented to a joy that lasts with this passage. Right? So let's see how he does that. What do we learn about joy based on what Paul teaches here in this collection of verses? If you go back to verse 2 in his first reference where he says, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, part of what we need to understand is that joy is so frequently tied to hope. Right? It's about understanding the hope that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. The hope of everlasting life. The hope of being with God forever. That is where we find joy. And when we cling to that, it's going to empower us and enable us to actually be joyful even in our sufferings. Right? And Paul gives the explanation as to why. Because suffering in a very unique and meaningful way will actually, actually bring you closer to hope. Right? It's going to pr- provide Perseverance. It's going to build character, but it's also going to lead you to hope because the more you encounter suffering, the more you encounter hardship, the more you're going to long for that suffering to be alleviated, the more you're going to need to cling to hope. And so the more we can understand and believe and trust in the hope that comes from the glory of God, the more we're going to be able to rejoice in that hope and then consequently rejoice in our sufferings as well. And so God tells us, or Paul tells us, as we're reading through these verses, he kind of anticipates the natural question, right? He anticipates the doubts that people often have when they think about hope and God's promises. How do I know? How do I know that's actually gonna happen? How do I actually know that I'm gonna get to live with the Lord forever? How how can I really trust this promise of a new heaven and a new earth? And Paul says, listen, his hope, does not put you to shame. Other translations would say his hope does not disappoint. You can trust it to come to fruition. How can you trust it? Because he's poured out his love into our hearts. Right? That's how you know that this, this hope is real and it's going to be brought to fulfillment. And so verses 6 through 11 are an explanation of that love that has been poured out into our hearts. And here's what's incredible about this love. right? Paul explains, he says, this love finds you when you're powerless. It comes to the ungodly, it comes to the sinner, it comes to the enemy of God. That's the state that this love finds you because Christ died for the powerless, the ungodly, the enemy, the sinner. It's a remarkable statement. And Paul elaborates on it by calling this distinction between the righteous and the good person, right? He says, listen, uh, no one's going to die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. And and here's what he's acknowledging is that there is actually a difference in terms of how people viewed the righteous individual and the good person. So the righteous person is is the law-abiding citizen or, or Jew, probably, in this particular context, right? They're the... They're the holier-than-thou person, right, that does everything right. And Paul's like, listen, nobody likes that guy. Nobody's dying for him, okay? And that's really pretty much what he's saying. And, and then he kind of creates this distinction. But there are good people, right, who aren't so self-righteous and all these other things that people genuinely like, and, and folks may actually consider dying for a good person. But his point is this, is that God has not set any prequalifications on you to be a recipient of his love. He is not waiting for you to be righteous, nor is he waiting for you to be good, to be worthy of his love. He loves you as a sinner. He loves you while you're powerless. He loves you even in your enemy state towards God. He loves you in all those things. That's really incredible, church. And I hope we understand it because really what it's doing is it's painting a picture of a father's love. And, and, and a good father, right? And, and not just a father, it's really that parental love because we know moms love their kids in a very similar way. But it's, there's just this love that is expressed to children that, that doesn't require any sort of prerequisite or conditions to be met. All right, we've talked about this before. I've shared with you that uh, my wife and I, we struggled to get pregnant and, and so it was harder for us to start a family. And so when we finally did get pregnant and we were able to welcome James into the world, man, we were absolutely joyful, And it was so fun. And I will admit that there was a lot of um, just kind of preconceived ideas of being new parents. We were very naive, didn't know what to expect. And it's slightly terrifying when they hand you a, a life to care for and you're like really like you're letting me do this and and yet at the same time you kind of romanticize the idea about what that's going to look like when you're about to be a new parent and so I, I remember kind of picturing that idea of, of this just perfect scenario of when we get to bring James home from the hospital we get to bring him into our house and it's decorated and there's signs that are like it's a boy and everyone's like yeah it's a boy and we're taking him on a tour of our house like this is where you live now, here's your room, you know, and it's just this great occasion. And then that night, you know, these ideas where we just get to swaddle him and then lay peacefully in his crib, and he just drifts off to sleep, and we put our arm around each other and lay our heads, and we just sigh, this this spirit of grace, and then we go to sleep for eight hours, right? Like that's what it means to be a parent, correct? And, and so what we realized when we took James home is that we're bringing home not this perfect, innocent little baby. We're bringing home a sinner, right? And I mean that. Like, he is a little sinner, and I love him, but that's what you bring home. And so our experience was we take James to the nursery that night, and that kid would not quit screaming and crying. Like, he would not eat. He would not sleep. He was absolutely screaming at the top of his lungs. And Jennifer and I looked at each other, and we smiled. And we said, isn't this great? And we loved every second of it. Now, I'll admit, we we wanted the screaming to stop. We wanted the crying to stop. We were committed to that. But we loved him. It's not like we brought him home and we thought to ourselves, well, we'll see. You know, we'll see what kind of kid he is. You know, I mean, if he doesn't cry, then maybe we'll love him. You know, as he gets older, if he does what we say, then maybe we'll, we'll love him. Like, we just loved him. And that's how God loves us. He's not looking for us to meet some conditions or prerequisites. He loves us while we were sinners. And Paul's whole point is that if God is willing to send Jesus to die for you when you are in that state, how much more so then will he see this love and this hope to completion through his life? If you find grace and mercy through the death of Christ, you will find that full restoration and reconciliation through his life. This hope will not disappoint you. Therefore, rejoice in God through your Lord Jesus Christ. Right, so he explains how this love works and how it's been poured out into our hearts. And in so doing, what we discover is that we absolutely should be joyful people, right? We should absolutely rejoice in this hope. Rejoice, yes, even in our suffering. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This should be a key characteristic of a believer, which should be one of the greatest witness tools that we have, is that we should look different because of our joy. Do you know anybody like that? Right? like, Do you know somebody that's just almost annoyingly joyful? Right? They, they, they provide a great example. They really do. I remember one of my first experiences with this that, that really stood out to me. I was a freshman in college. Right? I, was, I was going to OU and I uh, went to that first week there to a campus crusade a gathering. It was a campus ministry. And there I met a guy by the name of Jake Moore. Right? Jake was about this tall and had spiky blonde hair and wore these black glasses, and it had this massively huge smile. I mean, just a contagious, energetic, joyful smile. And so I, I meet Jake. He was a senior uh, my freshman year, and he and I hit it off because he had a heart for missions, and I had a heart for missions. And so we were just talking about missions, and he tells me in the middle of this first conversation, he says, you know what you should do? You should join a fraternity. I was like, like a Christian fraternity? He was like, no, like join a fraternity. He said, that'll give you a tremendous opportunity to live missionally while you're here on this campus. And it really resonated with me, and so I did. I actually joined the same fraternity that he was a part of, and I had a chance that first year to see how Jake witnessed to others the gospel. And I'll never forget, in the first couple of weeks, we had our first date party. And and it was everything you would expect the stereotypical fraternity collegiate date party to look like, right? I mean, everybody goes there following the patterns of the world. Right? That's how they're going to enjoy their time. That's where they're going to find happiness. And I watched Jake, through that experience, uh, break free from those patterns and demonstrate a completely alternative expression of joy. Right? So he didn't take a date to a date party because he already had a girlfriend who he was very serious with and she they were dating long-distance. So he goes with friends. He doesn't have a drop of alcohol. And he stands there in the middle of the dance floor and he just goes crazy. I mean, he just dances like with just ultimate pure joy, the smile on his face. And you watched, everybody noticed. Like they would turn and look, and, and it brought joy to their lives. They, they would smile and laugh because he was having so much fun. And he came to me later that night, and he said, I love showing people that you don't need to have all this other stuff to be joyful, that all you really need is Jesus. And that was Jake's testimony, right? What was so compelling about that is that his witness, his evangelism tool in that moment was not some theological treatise. It wasn't some measure of apologetics, right? It wasn't, hey, here's a list of rights and wrongs and do's and don'ts. His evangelism was joy, and it had a tremendous impact on those that saw it. So think about it, church. Like, seriously, if we really believe that we have a Savior that died for our sins, if we really believe that we've been promised everlasting life, truly believe in a new heaven, a new earth, where there's no more sorrow, suffering, or pain, we truly believe that we get to be with God forever, how could we not be joyful? Right? Like, it should absolutely be who we are. So why is it that it can be so difficult to live that joyful life at times? Why is it that we can consistently go back to these distractions that snuff out that joy and have us chasing these fleeting feelings of happiness rather than an enduring joy that comes through Jesus. Right? I I think part of what we have to wrestle with this morning is is that natural response to sermons and messages like this. Right? Because I I know, I've felt it myself, I'm sure many of you are thinking it right now. Like, you listen to that, that message and you're like, okay, I hear you but you don't know what I'm going through. Like you don't know what I'm facing, what I'm trying to overcome, what I've endured. Joy's difficult, right? It's hard to find in these seasons. And there are times when we experience that, that a message like this kind of becomes overly simplistic and can feel out of touch. Almost like we're saying, hey, Jesus died for you, so put a happy grin on your face no matter what you're facing. And that's really difficult to do. And what we're really talking about is how is it that we take this message of Jesus's death and resurrection and all the joy that it secures for us and all the hope that it points to, and how do we move it from head knowledge to heart knowledge? Because a lot of us are sitting there going, yeah, I get it. Jesus loves me. This I know. I know the Bible tells me so, but I don't feel like singing. So how do we overcome that so that it's no longer something we just know up here, but we feel deeply in here? And I think when we really begin to wrestle with that, what we have to really talk about is how do we create a lifestyle that creates the opportunity for joy to flourish? How do we build in habits and rhythms, not just on these occasions that naturally bring celebration and joy, but on a regular basis, not just on a vacation weekend, but on a regular Monday through Friday or through the whole week, how do we create a lifestyle that creates the opportunity for us to be joyful people? And that's what I want us to really focus on for the rest of our time. I've got several considerations for us in terms of habits and and rhythms and structures and a lifestyle that can help foster that sort of joyful disposition. My first suggestion to us this morning would be be in God's word, right? That, hey, cheat code. That is the application to almost every sermon ever, right? Like, how do I find repentance? How do I find prayer? Go to the Word, right? Like, be in the Bible. You want to know how to create an atmosphere and a life of joy? Be in Scripture, right? Now, when you turn to Scripture, what you're going to find is that all the different emotions of the human heart are evident, right? Scripture acknowledges lamenting it acknowledges grief. It acknowledges rebellion and all those other things, but it absolutely compels us to be joyful, right? If you were to just sit down at BibleGateway.com and enter in joy, you're going to get 247 different references in the scripture that point to joy, according to the NIV, right? And when you look through those different references, you're going to see a high concentration of them fixtured in the Psalms, right? And so there's a lot to learn from the psalmist and how the Psalms and these songs and these prayers call us to live a life of joy. And I want us to hear that. I want us to to embrace that a little bit this morning. So I brought a collection of not all of them, right? There were 57 in the Psalms, so I didn't, I didn't do that to you. But let me give you a, a good representation of them so we can hear once again the call and the way that Scripture compels us to be joyful people. Psalm 5, verse 11 says, but let all who take refuge, refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Psalm sixteen eleven, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Psalm nineteen eight, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Psalm twenty eight seven, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song I praise him. Psalm thirty eleven, you turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Psalm 33, three. sing to him a new song, play skillfully, and shout for joy. Psalm 51, eight. let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Psalm 90.14, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Psalm 92.4. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. In Psalm six three, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Right? The scriptures keep our hearts focused on joy. It, it's the motivational speaker that our souls and our hearts need. Right? And what I would tell you is that if your life is empty of the word of God, it's very likely your life will be empty of joy. Right? We need to be in the word of God. That's my first suggestion. Number two, be in nature, right? Get out in nature. A great opportunity to see that even just with the children's message today and just the, the natural smiles that we have when we see a, a, an innocent little story of a duck laying eggs on our playground. But here's the reason I say that is because so much of what we see in the book of Romans is Paul trying to reorient the, pro, the appropriate relationship between creator and creature, Right, that one of the patterns that we fall into is to exchange the truth of God for the lie and begin to worship created things rather than the creator. And the more we fill our life with created things, the less likely we are going to be joyful. But when we can reorient that relationship, understanding that we are a creature dependent upon creator, then that joy is going to be given an opportunity to flourish. And so the more we are in nature, the more we reorient ourselves as creature dependent upon creator. You guys know what I'm talking about. And I've had a couple of trips already this summer and I've had these sorts of opportunities. First trip I was on, we were in this remote area of uh, the Texas Hill Country, staying at this ranch with my family. And as I was walking back to a cabin one night, I looked up into the sky and it was just filled with stars. And it's always a a reminder, right, that one of the reasons we don't see so many stars when we're back here in the city is because we're surrounded by created things. And it snuffs out so much of what we can see, but you get yourself in nature and you see the work of his hands so much more clearly. And one night, literally my family just sat under the sky for hours looking at the stars. It was just so compelling. We were at the lake not too long ago as well, and our cabin was situated on top of this little hill And we could walk out to the road that led up to our cabin and it allowed us to look over into this beautiful kind of terrain, this hilly terrain, and it was the perfect view for the sunset. And so every night we could sit there right there in the middle of the road and just watch the sun slowly fade behind the horizon. And it was incredible, right? There was just something about being in his creation and being mindful of all that his hands have made and seeing him as the creator that brought joy. And so that's a practical thing we can do. That's a way to create a rhythm and a lifestyle. Be in his word, be in nature. Here's a third one, be in community, right? Community is incredibly important. We know that Genesis tells us it's not good for mankind to be alone, so we always have to guard against loneliness, right? The the research, the science, the articles are well-documented of how there's a loneliness epidemic that's going on in our country and how detrimental it is to our health. So we need to be in community but what I would emphasize to you this morning is you need to be in the right kind of community, right? Because it's easy to put yourself in a community that's very negative, right? Where where you're just gonna be surrounded by people that all they wanna do is vent or complain, or maybe create a sense of community where people are just gonna lead you further into the patterns of the world and certain indulgences, right? It's easy for us to create very unhealthy community, right? And so what we need to do is take the time and prioritize investing in people and creating a sort of community and a network of friendships of people that are going to point us back to faith. They're going to point us back to hope and to the love that we have in Jesus Christ. And when we find that sort of community, we need to be in the same room with one another. Right? And I have to emphasize that in a world like today where so much of our connections are happening virtually. And the reality is that's a cheapened expression of community. We need to share the same space, breathe the same air, experience the same touch in order to really find that sort of encouragement that community can provide. And the more we do that, the more we'll have an opportunity to experience joy. It's an important rhythm. That's an important habit and lifestyle we need to cultivate. The fourth one that I suggest to you is we just need to laugh more. Can I get an amen? Who doesn't like laughing? Raise your hand and we'll laugh at you. Right? Like, seriously, just laugh for a little. Just everybody. Just do a little chuckle, like I said, something really funny. <laughs> Don't you feel better already? Like, laughter is good. And it makes us feel, it does something to us. It's a gift from God. We need to create a life that that laughs more. Isn't it amazing how it serves as such a powerful medicine, oftentimes at our greatest time of need? I've seen this in my own life, I've seen it with other families. Uh, especially families that are going through grief, right? You, let's say you've, you've lost a loved one. It's amazing how in the middle of your grief, laughter can spontaneously just find you. This happened with me on several occasions as I was grieving the loss of my dad. And, and right thereafter, you know, uh, his, his passing, my sister and I are in his warehouse going through a bunch of his stuff. And absolutely, it was a time that was filled with tears and sadness and grief. And then all of a sudden, like something would happen and we'd just laugh, like we'd, we'd find a receipt and we're like, who saves a receipt from 15 years ago, right? And we just would laugh, we're like what an accountant does, you know, and then we just start telling stories and, and laughter would be right there in the middle of the sadness and it brought joy even to something very difficult, right? Laughter is a gift. So think about how you can create a lifestyle that promotes being able to laugh, right? Break out into random dance parties with your family and see if somebody doesn't laugh, right? Enjoy good conversation. Not not laughter that's at the expense of someone else or is laughter because something is cruel and unwholesome, but laughter over a good story that just brings life to conversation. Lord knows we live in a world right now where so many of the voices are angry and upset and venting. How much better is it if we bring laughter to a conversation rather than something else? and see how that changes our disposition towards joy. So be in his word. Create habits of being out in nature. Spend time in rich, meaningful community. Laugh more, a fifth one. Live with purpose, right? I think one of the reasons sometimes joy is hard to come by is because we look up one day and we feel like our life doesn't have any real significant meaning, right? And that's what happens when we follow the patterns of the world, and we start pursuing happiness rather than joy, is that it doesn't really satisfy us and fulfill us and give us the purpose that we longed for. Here's one way to think about it. And when you go back to Genesis and you see the the command from God upon Adam and Eve to be fruitful, fill the earth, and multiply, a lot of times people will read that section and think that it's really just speaking to procreation, right? Have children, fill the earth. I had a a professor in seminary that really fixated on that phrase, fill the earth. And his argument and his suggestion was that that's not just about uh, creating children, that that's really about creating culture, right? And here was his argument, right, is that that if we are made in the image of God and our God is a creator, then we are made also with the capacity to create, that we are made with the capacity to design, to paint, to draw, to build to innovate, right? We have the ability to create things and to fill the earth. And when we use that sort of God-given ability, and we use it not for self-indulgence, not for self-gratification, and when we don't use it in isolation, but in community, and we, we build, and we draw, and we paint, and we design, and we innovate for our neighbor, right? When we do so out of service, When we do so in love, it gives our life meaning and purpose, and it brings us joy. So how can you do that each and every day? How do you wake up each and every day and say, I'm going to live life today on purpose. I'm going to give joy to other people. I want to use what God has given me in a way that brings service and love to those around me. If we live with that sort of purpose and intent, it's going to create more opportunities for joy. And my last suggestion to us this morning uh, as we think about how we can foster a life, a, a lifestyle that creates joys be in His Word, be in nature, spend time in good, rich, meaningful community, laugh more, uh, create life with purpose, and then the last one have the right perspective. It's about outlook. It's about mindset. In fact, the reality is that so often the secret to living a life of joy and really doing all those things that we've talked about and having that sort of lifestyle is really going to depend upon your outlook and the perspective that you have. What I would say is this is the anti-worrying mindset. So many of us fill our life with worry rather than joy. And I I would tell you one of the quickest ways to kill joy is to worry. And Jesus knows this. And this is why he teaches on it several times. Right, he talks about it even in the Lord's Prayer. Right, Give us this day our daily bread. Right, he knows that for many people that are listening to him teach about prayer that many of them don't know where their next meal is coming from. That they're hoping to find some form of a daily wage that day that would allow them to get the food that they need. And Jesus is saying Trust. Don't worry. Trust that the Lord will meet your needs. He knows exactly what you need. And that's that's where we struggle. Because oftentimes the way that we try to trust is we want God to meet our needs the way that we want them to be met. Right? In our timing, in our mindset. And real trust understands that God knows what we need more than we do. That he might be taking us through a valley or through hardship or through difficulty for certain reasons. Because he's gonna provide for us in ways that maybe we wouldn't have been able to achieve otherwise. That's a different sort of trusting. But that's why Jesus reiterates it even there in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Right, tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Don't, Don't concern yourself with what you're gonna eat and drink and what you're gonna wear Look at the birds of the air. Look at how he cares for his creation. How much more is he going to care? He knows what you need. Don't worry. Instead, seek his kingdom first. And when you seek the kingdom of God first, and you have that sort of perspective, that sort of trust, you're going to create a life of contentment, a life of gratitude, rather than complaint, Rather than of thinking what you don't have, you're going to be grateful for what you do have. You're going to be able to have the right outlook and perspective that's going to give the seed and the nurturing to living a life of joy. You need to have that right sort of perspective. And so the question becomes, how do you cultivate that? Like, how, how do you make that a part of your rhythm and your lifestyle? I'll tell you one of the things that we do in our home. It's much harder to do in the summer because uh, summer routine is really kind of an oxymoron, like there is no routine in our home. Uh, During the school year, it's much easier to have our lives in a greater uh, synchronization with one another, and so typically, during the school year, what you'll see in our home is after everybody's had breakfast and they've gotten dressed and they're ready for school, we'll gather together and our family will say a quick little prayer before we go about our day. Nothing long or elaborate, just a little prayer for the day. And once the prayer is over, um, I will recite the first part of a verse. And I expect every one of my children to recite the second part of the verse before they leave. And so we'll finish praying and I'll, I'll look at all my kids and I'll say, this is the day the Lord has made. And each and every one of them have to look back at me and respond, I will rejoice and be glad in. It. And we use that as a daily rhythm. Because part of what I want my kids to see and part of what I'm reminding myself is today is a gift. And I have the opportunity to have the right outlook, the right perspective, to choose joy. to rejoice in it and part of what my kids know and even what i know is that that day still may be filled with trouble but they can still choose joy right we all know that life is going to be filled with trouble not a single person in here that hasn't experienced it or isn't experiencing it and so our outlook in those moments will really dictate whether or not we can find joy even in those seasons and that's where i find inspiration from jesus because when you look back at the story of his life and the night that he was arrested, it tells us that after they had eaten in the upper room, they sang a psalm and went out. And, and most and, uh, scholars would ex- expect that the psalm that he probably sang because of the time of Passover was the same psalm that includes that verse. Which means that when Jesus knew he was about to be arrested persecuted and crucified, he stood in community, stood with purpose, stood by being anchored in the word of God and said, yes, even today is the day the Lord has made and I will rejoice and be glad in it. And if our savior can say that when he's facing that sort of trouble, how much more so should we? So these are the things that I would suggest to you to create this lifestyle of joy, right? To be able to be in the word, to be able to to create that sense of being in nature and community and finding laughter and purpose and having that right outlook and perspective. And if we do those things on a regular basis, I truly believe we're going to be able to clearly see that we can absolutely rejoice in the hope that we have in God. That no matter what difficulties may come our way, we can rejoice even in our sufferings because all those sufferings are just going to bring us back to hope. And it's going to remind us that that hope doesn't disappoint us because God's poured out his love into our hearts and we can trust in that love because while we were powerless, while we had nothing that we could offer, Christ died for us. And if he saved us through his death, how much more will he save us through His life, we can rejoice in our God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the call, church. See, when we look underneath the source of this joy, what we see is a Savior. A Savior who loves us so deeply. What we see is amazing grace. A grace that compels us to sing and to be joyful and all circumstances. So let us do that today, church. Let's gather together and recognize today is the day the Lord has made, and we all have a choice. Let us rejoice and be glad in it because of God's amazing grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you, and we confess, God, there are so many times that we lose sight of the grace that you've afforded us god because we focus in on the wrong things god we we confess that so many times we live according to the patterns of the world rather than to the rhythm of the gospel and so help us once again father just stand in awe of this grace that reveals the savior who died for us when we were powerless and had nothing that we can offer help our hearts god once again see the hope that we have of everlasting life, the hope of a new Jerusalem, the hope of being with you forever. And may that hope overshadow the difficulties and the trials and the hardship and the suffering that any of us may be experiencing today. Help us to hold tightly to all that you've offered, God, so that we can truly be the people who are devoted to you, who discern your will and delight in all that you do for us. Let this be our witness to the world around us. And we have joy because of this amazing grace. We love you, Father. And in all these things, we pray to your glory and under the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen and amen.